I think that half the battle in choosing your goals and having a level of self-efficacy is knowing yourself enough to know what's a reasonable goal. So do I like delicious salty feta cheese? Yes, I do. But do I need to eat delicious salty feta cheese all the time? Do I need that every day? No. You know, come on, American. It's like you don't you don't have to have everything all the time. And so I think that having having a little discipline in place and just saying, no, I don't do this here will be useful for me. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Is Dory Clark the most friendly and approachable person I've interviewed? I think this interview will show that she, she's in the running. It was a really fun conversation. We started talking about leadership crucibles. If you need a crucible to become a leader, I don't think you do. And I don't think, I think she agrees, but I think also can help if you do have these challenges. And then we went into her real forte of how to become more authentic, how to make yourself known. This is what her books are about. And then how she developed her playbook that she teaches you of how to make yourself known, how to contact people, how not to contact people. And when we switched over to talking about the environment and her connection to the environment from her youth, there she really started talking about how to set goals, how to make goals achievable, and she set a six-month challenge for herself, which is one of the longer ones that anyone has set. So I'm really impressed by that. I'm looking forward to hearing how it goes. So let's listen to Dory. We're jumping right into this because listeners know that I've preferred to not do the talking beforehand because I find some of the best conversation happens at the beginning. And the listeners mm. don't get to hear that. I don't like to put someone on the spot. So I was asking you if it was okay. That's why we started mid-sentence. So people are like, what's going on? So this is the Leadership in the Environment podcast. <laughs> it's Josh. I'm here with Dory Clark. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. Thanks so much. It's good to chat with you. You know, I was preparing for this and I was thinking of stuff to ask you. If I had met you online, you have this international presence, all the big organizations from Harvard Business Review and the New York Times and Harvard, Yale, and you know, all this big stuff. And your books are like number one by all these big places. But I didn't meet you that way. I met you in person. And you're really approachable. Like people who listen to the, you know, like Marshall Goldsmith is one of my mentors and Francis Hesselbein. And like, I don't think he would object to being called a showman. He's like a very kind of showy guy. And it's really cool. He's an extrovert for sure. Yeah, for sure. He's like, yes. And you don't strike me as particularly at one end of any spectrum on this, but you're approachable, you're friendly, you're, if I hadn't known I would have, actually, I didn't know at the beginning. I was like, you're just a regular person. And that makes you, to me, more, me more authentic and genuine. And I think a lot of people want that. They want more of that in themselves. Am I picking up something that other people pick up? And if so, is it something you worked at or is it something that you've never worked at? 
I just put- uh, well, it's first of all, it's a very kind phrasing of the question, so I appreciate that. For me, it is something that's really important to make sure that however people come to know me, whether it's you know subscribing to my email list and getting my emails or reading my books or meeting me in person, it is very important that they receive a unified sense of who I am. I don't want to be any different in my emails or books or in person. I think that for me, when people talk about, you know, personal brands and authenticity and things like that, which I, you know, write about a lot, I think that what I really believe in is no daylight, no daylight between a public and a private persona. And I understand that some people hold that dear, that they like to have, you know, the private them. And, you know, that's okay. There's different reasons for that, I suppose. But for me, it's kind of the opposite. I feel like real authenticity for me is is making it so that there's not multiple identities. Everybody gets the same story. Were you always this way? Like, did there used to be daylight and now there's less? Because I found that when I first started, the more public I get, the more anxiety I feel. And that started from when I was just, you know, making presentations in class in college. That's interesting. Why do you feel like it increased your level of anxiety? Well, I I guess at the beginning, like if I'm just talking to someone one-on-one, it's no big deal. If there's multiple people, I feel like I have the, well, if I act, the more genuine I act, the more I can be judged. And the more, like if I act like a clown and someone laughs at me, I can say, they're not laughing at me. It's not the real me. They're laughing at the facade that I put up. I don't think in those terms, but you know, I mean, now I might, but when I was right. And so I would, you know, it's much easier to put a false, a facade in front and then I don't feel bad if things don't go well. Right. Right. That makes perfect sense. It's, it's reacting to the fear that I feel. And you know, the podcast is, I've worked at it to become more authentic. And then the podcast or being on other people's podcasts originally was a chance to, as I put it, something similar to what you said, was that if either you're going to be a complete fake or completely honest, but anything in between is going to seem really weird. And so I had to go for full honesty. That's what I try to do. I think I'm always a challenge. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. For me, I actually think that, you know, it took me years to really think about this and kind of piece it together. But I actually think my philosophy, you could even call it sort of an ideology that I've evolved, actually comes from being gay. Because I think that if you are going to adapt successfully to being a minority, as it were, you need to recognize early on that no matter what, there are going to be some people that are judging you or that have critical beliefs, you know, that you just can't have anything to do with. And, you know, you really have a choice at that point, which is either you have to become really paranoid about, oh, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? And worry about controlling information disclosure and and all these things that are very psychologically taxing. Or (laughs) you do what I do, which is, you know, I came out as a a teenager. And so I think to a certain extent, it's um, still even a little bit tempered with this kind of teen age rebellion, which is like, oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) No one is going to judge me. I am going to set the terms of my identity. I am going to set the narrative. And I think that, at least for me, I would say, I think that's been a, a kind of healthy adaptive mechanism that in some ways I was forced into by coming out. But to a certain extent, I actually think that, that that's something that everyone, you know, regardless of one's sexuality, ultimately kind of needs to come to. You know, being gay sort of calls the question sooner. But I mean, ultimately, if we want to be successful, autonomous adults, 
we have to reach the point where it's like, who cares what people think? We just have to do our own thing. And so I, I think that that is something that has perhaps evolved into being a strength. It's interesting that you, what you talk about as a strength is what a lot of people would might call a crucible, you know, a challenge you have to go through because probably, I would guess, I mean, when you came out, did you get friction from different sources that it was probably less easy than if you didn't have to come out? Yeah, absolutely. I was coming out in the early 1990s, so it was certainly a less accepting time. So there was friction both culturally and, you know, with some people around. Although I think that to a certain extent, my attitude of not wanting to take people's crap may have pushed away people that would have been inclined to give me crap. (laughs) And so it's not that I experienced a huge amount directly, but certainly that was in the air, was the expectation of societal disapproval. And so I think it it is something that was a bit of a a crucible. You know, this raises a question that comes up a lot of, do great leaders or great people require crucible to go through? And I believe they don't, but a lot of them sure do. See, I think there, there are people who are probably listening right now saying, oh, darn, I wish I had had something like that so that I could have gone through some challenge. Poor me, I don't have that, which is this weird twist where they're like- If more people want to be gay, I totally (laughs) encourage them. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but you know what I mean? It could be any number of things. You know, it could be, you know, you could be blind or it could be skin color. It could be whatever. And I don't want people at home or anyone thinking, I don't have X, so therefore I'm at a disadvantage when X is something that if they didn't hear you say it, they'd probably think it wasn't helping. It wouldn't help them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that the way that I think of crucibles, leadership crucibles, as it were, is almost like it's a, it's certainly not necessary, but I would call it a hastening device. It's just something that the reaction where if you're going to be successful, you need to surmount that challenge eventually. Mm-hmm. And plenty of people can do that and learn the lessons and assimilate that on their own. But being faced with some kind of a, uh, a challenge just brings it on sooner. And the trick, of course, is that for some people, they're not ready for that challenge. And so it goes badly. But if you do kind of figure it out, then it means that... Um, you know, whatever, you've passed that level of the video game perhaps sooner than you might have chosen to do. And that can be an advantage in some circumstances. So it doesn't create anything, it reveals something or maybe reveals it faster than it could have been revealed otherwise. I think that's right. And if you didn't have that occasion, it's possible that you might go your whole life and never realize your greatness or your potential. Yeah, I think that's also true. I feel like some a thread in your work is that you want to help people bring that out and you want to accelerate that by, I mean, you've written that like it takes work. Yeah, absolutely. For the work, is that right? Yeah, I, in the books that I've written, you know, Reinventing You and Stand Out and Entrepreneurial You, I am aiming them at individuals to try to help people figure out how they can get their ideas heard in the modern, very noisy, very crowded world. And I feel passionate about that. Because I've seen so many people, and I'm sure you have too, Josh, that have great ideas, they're really smart, they're really insightful, but because they don't know how to play the game, let's say, they don't necessarily know how to promote themselves or navigate the art of getting known, their ideas languish. And I think that's a shame. I would really like to see the best ideas win. And so in order to do that, in order to kind of create an equal opportunity zone, you have to educate and equip people with 
the playbook for how they can really do that. That's really interesting because I feel like you sound like a coach in the sports sense of bringing out the best in their players. And that means you probably bring to the table, you have a playbook that other people don't have. Or you've, How did you develop your playbook? Well, I started my career as a journalist, and that kind of was what got me on the reinvention journey. I was uh, the first job that I had after graduate school was being a political journalist, and I got laid off after just about a year of doing it. So I didn't actually have that much time to learn journalism, but it was very influential for me, just in terms of a way of thinking, a way of seeing the world, a methodology, certainly learning to write well and quickly. Mm -hmm. And so that has really been the lens through which I've seen just about all my work since then. And so if I have a problem or a question that I'm trying to solve, what I will typically do, and I've actually done this for all three of my books, is I will find a goodly number of people, usually 50 or so, and I will just interview them. You know, people who I feel like have some unique insight into the problem and how they have overcome it. And so I will do all the interviews, get all the information, and then spend some time assimilating it and putting it in order and structuring it and, and seeing what patterns and trends emerge. And then from that, I can usually create a pretty good guidebook for people to help them figure out how to apply these principles to their own lives. So you said that you had a passion. Is the passion, I think what you just described is the method by which you work. Like you, you trained as a journalist and became a journalist and that's how you work. I feel like that's what the, like the medium and the, the passion is seeing the results in others or getting ideas out there. Well, I, I think the passion comes from me trying to solve a problem that I have, which is, you know, I started my business 11 years ago. And like a lot of people that are, you know, coaches or consultants or just, you know, somebody who wants to make a difference in the world, I wanted to figure out, okay, how do I reinvent myself successfully? How do I stand out and get known as being among the best in my field? How do I build a really successful business that's lucrative and very sustainable? And I wanted to figure these things out. And so I tried to to pursue the answers out of my own curiosity and my own desire to succeed and you know build something meaningful for myself. But I also feel like some people really come from a scarcity mentality. And for me, I rebel against that. I, I get offended when I hear people hoarding information. And so I figured, you know, if I figured this out for myself, I would like to be able to help other people figure it out too, because they are not my competition. I would like to be helpful if I can. So what you're saying, I want to ask questions, but I also want to, I can't help but comment that what you're saying is like, that's who I want to learn stuff from is someone who has figured it out for themselves. Access is, I mean, you interview others and you get resources from lots of other places, but you don't just learn in, in an academic way because you're using it for, to solve your own problems. And when you talk about the problems that you're solving, I'm like, those are the problems. Yeah, that's what I want. I want to get my voice out there. I want to be more authentic and be myself. So I couldn't help but comment on that. I'm like, yeah, yeah thanks. You're welcome, I guess. I felt like I was like just talking. And you know, I just jumped in at asking all these personal questions about you, partly because it was the authenticity and genuineness that when I think of you, that's what I think of, is of the people of your stature, your approachableness is really high. And so I wanted to, to ask about that. Oh, you know what? I have to tell an anecdote about... Yeah, uh, do it. Just after my book came out earlier this year, I went up to a party and you were there and it was Elisa's and it was the first time I saw my book on the shelf. And I was like, I felt so proud. And then your book was there and I was like, oh, that book has sold a lot more than mine has. And so it was like a nice, <laughs> it like brought me back down. And then you were there and it was very friendly. So it's not like, it was just a very friendly thing. Actually, I felt like it was out of a Woody Allen movie of being in the Upper West Side and having 
professors with books and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Most of New York is like a, a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Anyway, so that was just a little aside. But also just, you're kind of around in a way that's, you know, I don't know if I'm giving people who might want to reach you too much ammunition, but you seem very approachable and maybe you want to hear from them. Is that something that I'm, I'm, am I making you sound too approachable for people or do you want to be not approachable? <laughs> well, I guess like everybody, right? You want to be approached by the right people. Yeah. Um, I certainly get approached by plenty of people that you know send messages on LinkedIn like, oh, hi, Dory, your work is great. By the way, here's my book proposal. We oh, don't yeah. know each other, but will you read it and critique it? Or, hey, Dory, we don't know each other, but I see that you're connected to this famous person. Will you introduce me? And you're just like, oh, no, come on. You got to learn the skills a little better than that. But if you have somebody who, you know, who is an interesting, cool person and who is not immediately coming at you to hammer you for some giveaway, then, you know, certainly I do like connecting with people like that. Sorry if I put you on the spot. And I guess you'd like to hear from someone who's like, you know, I I did five things from your book, but the sixth one, I can't quite get to work. Could you help me with that? Something like that probably would be more, you like to help someone who helps themselves. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And, you know, also some people have really done some cool things. I mean, I'm actually planning to write an article about this because it can be an art to figure out if there's somebody that you have come across that you feel like is interesting, you want to meet them, you know, what's the right way to approach them so that you can kind of convey the message like, hey, you know, I'm your peer, you know, let's connect rather than, you know, some sort of weird thing where it might be blocked by gatekeepers or it might be coming off the wrong way. And so one example that I love, this recent example I was just in Denmark and I did some speaking engagements there. And anyway, I'm actually, as we're doing this, I'm wearing a sweater now that I bought in Denmark. And the reason that I bought this sweater is that a woman wrote to me a few days before I was going to be in Denmark. And, you know, I didn't go into it really knowing anyone in Denmark. It was my first time there. And so this woman writes to me and she says, oh, hi, Dory, I'm going to be coming to your talk on Wednesday. And by the way, I have 15 years experience in the fashion industry. And oh, I have this international MBA. And anyway, I've watched a number of your videos. And I think I have a good sense of what your style is. And so, you know, Copenhagen has like a great fashion scene. And so if it would be helpful for you, I'd love to take you out shopping and you can, you know, I could help you pick out some new clothes or if you want to go Christmas shopping and you're looking for something in particular, you know, for your family or whatever, I can help you find unique things from Copenhagen. And, you know, and it was just nice. And she's like, you know, no pressure. She's like, you know, if that doesn't work for your schedule, no worries. I'll just come see you and say hi at the talk on Wednesday. And it was so nice. You know, it it was very nice and very thoughtful. It was low pressure. And she conveyed why she was competent to do that. And also, you know, she made an interesting offer that was kind of compelling. Like, you know, oh, it's somebody who actually took the time to, you know, to watch my videos, to kind of analyze my style as it were. And so as it turned out, I actually did need to get some new winter clothes. So I, you know, I didn't know her at all, but I was just like, um, okay. So we ended up hanging out for, you know, a number of hours in Copenhagen. She did take me shopping and we picked out some stuff and it was really great, but that was kind of a creative take and a creative way to build a relationship. First of all, it's amazing. It's touching. And it, to me, it seems like you, I mean, you write about standing out and how to make yourself heard over the crowd and how to be yourself. And if you're creating a presence that across an ocean, people are picking up on and are able to respond to it, I feel like you're leading them, you're inspiring them. And through what you teach, through what you write about, and although you do say it takes work, 
Yeah, thank you. I know I, I felt very privileged that she reached out. It was really cool. I bet she felt more privileged. I mean, I, <laughs> we'd have to ask her. That's only an assumption on my part. But uh, yeah, it sounds like that's, I mean, that's what people want to be able to do. It's like when someone meets you, the people seek you out, they want to help you. Who doesn't want to live in a world like that? Yeah, absolutely. So I hope you don't mind if I switch also now to talking about the environment because it's in the title. Yes. I invite people to take on challenges to be on a second time. And now that's not a trivial thing to do. So I wonder when you hear something like leadership in the environment or you think about the environment, what, is it something important to you? Is it something you care about? I mean, not everyone does. It is something that I care about. You know, I would never purport to be the best environmentalist because I know there's many people that, uh, that that probably do a lot better job than I do. But it's something I've certainly been cognizant of for a long time. As we're recording this, I'm actually visiting my mom in North Carolina, and in fact, you know, one of the one of the many you know perhaps infuriating things that I did as a child was uh, because I was so interested in the environment. We, you know, at my town, of course, you know, it's like rural North. Carolina. When I was growing up, they did not have curbside recycling. And so you had to gather your own recyclables and take them to this special place for recycling. And so, you know, my family did not recycle. But when I was like eight, I was like, no, we need to recycle. And so I made our family start recycling. And then, you know, (laughs) probably net net, there was probably no gain because we had to like drive in the car with gasoline to go drop off all the recyclables. But nonetheless, it was important for me. And, uh, and I, I made sure that to enforce this. And so I was very, very particular about lecturing my parents about, you know, this kind of plastic can get recycled, but this can't and, uh, and all of that. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So I see a high level of action, very young. I see a high level of awareness because the netting out is a lot of people don't get to that stage of thinking that far. And then now the lecturing, I suspect you don't lecture as much anymore. I'm not sure. (laughs) I try to be a little more subtle. Yeah, you don't strike me as like the lecture type. And so that's what you did. What motivated you? Was it like telling your parents what to do or was it cleaning the planet or was it being like others or what was the passion behind that? Oh, no. I mean, it certainly wasn't being like others. I mean, nobody cared oh, about right. this shit, Josh. Yeah, sorry. I'm like, here I'm in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just, um, I was very interested in the news when I was young and, you know, I watched the news. I still do, you know, I mean, I think for a lot of people, you know, it's like, whatever, show me the boy, I'll show you the man, show me the girl, I'll show you the woman, that kind of thing. I would watch the news obsessively. And I really, really liked it as a kid for whatever reason. I would watch CNN headline news like every day after school. I would watch World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Like I was into it. And so I think I was much more perhaps aware of many sociopolitical issues, the environment being one of them, than probably most kids my age. And uh, it was just a real interest of mine. And so all the things were extremely concerning, you know, many of which, I mean, 
interestingly, are not issues now. I mean, there are things that because of legislation and because of scientific advances and things like that, we were actually able to kind of fix, which is great. Now, of course, we have perhaps even bigger problems with climate change, but I was very, very cognizant of acid rain, of, uh, you know, CFCs and the ozone layer, all that kind of stuff was weighing heavily on me. Yeah, I think both of those, I think cap and trade were things that made like, yeah, there's science, I guess. And then also an, also an economic and social solution. I'm pretty sure. I haven't looked in, the, yeah. in a whole lot of detail. So it's interesting. So it's the news of knowing what's going on. And to me, I would have thought that might sound still abstract, but maybe the news, I mean, when you hear about an ozone hole, it's kind of distant, but to you, it doesn't sound, what sounds more, less abstract is, is your connection to it through the news. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I have a theory, which I would probably need to talk to some developmental psychologists about to actually see if it's true. But I think certainly it was true for me that like the stuff that you pick up between, let's say, five and 10 or five and 12, it just whatever happens to take place in the world during that like five to seven year window is kind of like it's just the frame of like, oh, this is how the world is. And you can certainly go back and, you know, adjust it or correct it or whatever later as an adult. But it is, um, I think that's sort of the first, when, when you're sort of, your consciousness is waking up, that's kind of the first thing where you're looking around and you're like, oh, this is the situation. And so, I mean, you just think about all the other things too. I mean, like, look, dude, Chernobyl, that was happening then. Mm-hmm. Rainforest, de- you know, the, the deforestation of the rainforest, like those were all things that they just, they really felt like a clear and present danger to me. I'm just going through my head and, and thinking of things that stuck with me from those times. Certainly the music that I listened to when I was younger is the music I still listen to today. Although I think I got to start listening to some new music. <laughs> there is a sense of clear and present danger. Like I feel like it's been a long time since there's been a generation who feels like we just have a beautiful earth everywhere. Cause I think we have a lot of beauty, but there's a lot of acid rain. Well, I guess the acid rain has, has been less of an issue, but as you said, global warming or more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. It's, yeah. Yeah. Well, if it's a clear and present danger, hopefully not overstating it for any listeners, but, uh, or if that's how you see it, or if that's what kind of resonates with you, I invite you at your option to take on a personal challenge. But I have to put a couple of things in front because I found some things that help is one, you don't have to solve all the world's problems all by yourself overnight with this thing. Some people, <laughs> Thank you, it, Josh. <laughs> it knocks people out of the water. They're like, well, if I do this, but the whole world doesn't do their thing, then it doesn't matter. Okay, so you don't have to do that. It can't be something that you're already doing. And it can't be something where you tell someone else what to do because we have enough people telling other people what to do. And it does have to move the needle something. And so, you know, it can't be simply raising awareness, but that can be a middle step. And I think those are the main constraints and things that make it work. Yeah, I think that's great. And um, I think that, you know, taking taking on a personal challenge is, um, you know, is, is a useful thing to do. I think that, you know, I'll just share that something very, you know, it's very minor in the scheme of things, but but I actually feel very good about it. I am a big fan of the achievable goal. And what I mean by that is 
you know, I think this is more just like my personality than anything. But for instance, I'm a vegetarian. I have been a vegetarian since I was 13, which, you know, was when I was still living in a small town in North Carolina. And I knew then, I mean, I still like hats off to people that are vegans. I think that's great. But that is something that certainly if you live in a small town in North Carolina, but also now, you know, the reality for me is I do, while I live in New York, I travel a lot for business. And that is something that is just very hard to manage given, you know, being a vegan, given how most of the world operates. And I realized that I could pretty much pull off being a vegetarian. You know, I could do that. But if you were to take it one step further and be a vegan, it entails, unless you are in a very specific set of circumstances, you know, living and spending almost all of your time in a place where that is relatively understood or relatively easy to manage, it can create significant hardships. And so I decided that I would do what felt more sustainable to me over the long term, which is be a vegetarian. And so, you know, now here I am, you know, whatever, 25 years later, still a vegetarian. That's something that I felt pretty good about. Another more recent and kind of small bore example of that that I felt pretty good about was I used to, and I still do, there's a Chipotle on my block. And, you know, incidentally, hats off to Chipotle, which is one of the very few places that is a legitimate, just national chain, you can get it almost anywhere, that provides healthy and protein-filled vegetarian meals that you can get, even in really, really random places. I'm grateful to them for what they do. But anyway... I used to go pretty often, a couple times a week to Chipotle for lunch or dinner. And anyway, I would always, because, uh, you know, they offer it for free. I, you know, as a vegetarian, I would get my burrito bowl or whatever, and I would get it with the cheese and I would get it with a sour cream that they give you for free. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I would not do that. And I decided that every time I would eat at Chipotle, I would make it be vegan. And so, you know, is there a certain level of... Uh, sacrifice entailed? Yes, there is because the sour cream and the cheese are both free, but the vegan alternative, which is having a big scoop of guacamole, you have to pay like two thirty-five for it. So it's a little more money, but I decided, you know what? It's healthier, it's better, and I will be able to be more eco-friendly. So now I, I've just made a rule for myself that when I am at Chipotle, I am eating vegan because even if it costs a little more money, it is a, a viable and equally tasty alternative. So that's a small way that I've I've made a tweak, but it's something that means that, you know, over time, you know, let's say eight or 10 times a month, I'm now eating a vegan meal, whereas I wouldn't have before. You know, I'm borderline, I'm not yet vegan. And what you say rings so true to me. And, uh, it's that last little bit can be really difficult. Although that last little bit is also, to me, it's also where you, that's where you find your values. It's like, am I really going to live by my values or not? And although I think that the ones near me don't charge extra for the guacamole, if it's a vegetarian one or vegan one. Oh, really? I need to start eating at your Chipotle's, Josh. (laughs) That's great. Although if you got the, there's some fake meat sort of thing that they have. I forget what, sofritos or something like that. That one's- Sofritos, yeah. Yeah, that one you had to pay for the guacamole. But if you oh, got interesting. beans, just beans, then you didn't have to pay extra for it. That's what I remember. Oh. But it's okay, we're, we're hacking the Chipotle process. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop by there next time I'm around. Now I only go there for, uh, on Halloween, you get half-priced burritos. And so I put on my costume and go. <laughs> I feel kind of silly saying that, but that's what I do. <laughs> now, the things for this challenge, I made this rule, which you don't have to follow, but it's that if you take on a challenge for this, it has to be a new challenge. 
because we, I, yes. I want to have you on a second time and you say how it goes. And I was, I thought you might be heading in a direction of saying, I'm going to go for a month totally vegan, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. Well, I think what I am going to adopt as another challenge is, you know, because I was thinking about this in advance and I wanted to have something that seemed feasible to me to do. And so I think that what I'm going to do, I, <laughs> I don't really think it's feasible to go vegan for a month because you know what, one of my favorite things, there's not many things that I'm like, this is my favorite thing, but I really like lattes, Josh. And it's not like I have a lot of them. I have like one a day, but therefore I do not want to commit to having a purely vegan meal for, you know, for a month. However, what I did think about, because I was planning this out in advance, is that there is another restaurant, which I patronize really frequently, probably again, a couple times a week, um, called Bluestone Lane. And I usually get breakfast there. And typically it will be avocado toast with feta cheese and tomatoes and whatever. And I have decided, here it is, here's my smackdown. I've decided that this is now going to be for me a vegan restaurant. And so every time that I go in the future, I am going to turn that into a vegan meal, which means that I'm probably going to have about another, let's say eight vegan meals per month that I wouldn't have had otherwise. All right. So now I want to point out that I don't make a rule that you have to go full on anything. So it's nice that you're saying you'd like to go full on vegan, but except for this one thing, but that's totally fine. I think that to pick one, it's moving the needle. And, or as you said, I'm a big fan of achievable things. And over and over again on this podcast, I hear people, what makes a difference is not how big the thing is that, that they do first, that they do something. And that leads to this mindset shift that like something's possible that they didn't think was. Not to say that- Absolutely. But now I'm really interested in hearing what happens because you're going to go to this restaurant and I predict you're going to start interacting with the people there differently because you're going to be, well, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm kind of interested because I've seen a few people change their eating habits at regular places that they go and it tends to change relationships and things like that in interesting ways. Cool. Well, I will certainly keep you posted on all of this. I'm pumped to check it out and I, I know that uh, it'll make me healthier. I mean, certainly since making an effort to eat more vegan, I have noticed, I mean, healthy, let's be clear, but you know, like my cholesterol numbers dropped fairly significantly year over year. Like it was actually kind of remarkable. I'm like, wow, you know, just a few tweaks like that actually can have that much of a difference. So yeah, I think it's, it's a positive step. I have to point out a couple of things that you're doing that a lot of people don't do, but the successful ones do, which is that you've already picked up a few of the things that you know are going to be deal breakers or things that aren't going to work. You're not just acting on how you feel now. You're saying, you know, here's something that is, if I tried to do it, you know, to cut out all dairy, that wouldn't work. I like the lattes. And so you, you anticipate the problems and you're also involving people in the process. Cause I, you're saying the name of a restaurant, but I think, well, okay, it's the situation or maybe the people. And cause usually I try to have people think to themselves, what challenges could come up because people in places, you know, when you're with different people or you're in places that you're not used to challenges come up that you can't think of in the moment or, you know, at this time, but you're already doing that. So I feel like everyone should read her books because if you want to change, then do it with someone who knows how to do it and does it effectively herself. (laughs) Well, thank you. And it's also a smart goal. Did you say for one month, was it? No, like forever. Oh, forever. Okay. So that's even more a tip of the hat. (laughs) And, uh, I'd like to have people on a second time to talk about how the transition goes for them. If you're up for it, how long do you think it would take before you could get a feel for how it's working, what's working, what's difficult, what's easy, things like that? I don't know, six months, something like that. Like, I feel like it should be enough time that, uh, that, you know, there's some 
longitudinal track record. Well, I want to have you on again. And six months might be, that's a long time. But if that's how long it takes, then that's how long it takes. Can I schedule you for another conversation? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. And do you want to do six months or do you want to do, can I persuade you to do a little earlier? I don't know, maybe four. I just don't want it to be like, whatever. We talk in like two months and it's like, oh yeah, it's going great, Josh. You know, and I don't, I don't think that I'm going to fall off the horse because I'm pretty good at maintaining what I've committed to, but I want enough time so it's even just like convincing to your obtained the commitment rather than, you know, going back. Let's go for six months then. So today is December 8th. And so six months would be May 8th. Cool. Let's do it. All right. And is this time, we started at 11 a.m. on May 8th? We can certainly put it on the calendar. You know, caveat, my track... Oh, okay. So I actually already even know this. So Tuesday, May 8th, I am going to be teaching then. But why don't we put a note in the calendar, I don't know, like at the beginning of April, and then we can schedule ourselves because I get a lot of like travel and speaking engagements and stuff. And so that way we can make a note to schedule something where I know that I'll be able to make the time. Does that sound good to you? Okay. Yeah. So I'll put on my calendar, say like April 15th, we'll file our taxes. Oh, it's a Sunday. (laughs) And we'll connect to schedule the next conversation. Perfect. I'll just put a calendar invitation on. So you'll get that after you hang up. Awesome. I'm really excited to hear how this goes. And I'm really glad to hear that you're like, I'm in it for the long haul. Hold me accountable. I want the listeners to hear the full story, not just a, a quick little fun thing, but a serious change. Yeah. So before wrapping up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? Anything to share with the listeners and also how to reach you and what order to get the books in and things like that? Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh. I would say the best way that people can read more, get in touch, et cetera, is on my website, which is doryclark.com. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. I have more than 500 free articles from um, you know places that I've written for like Forbes, Harvard Business Review, et cetera. And I also have a resource that, that folks might enjoy. This is actually one I'm especially proud of called the Recognized Expert Evaluation Toolkit. And so for people, you know, we, we started our conversation, Josh, talking about how people can stand out and get heard in their fields. And so for people who are interested in that, I actually created a scored self-assessment to help people figure out where they are in the journey to becoming a recognized expert and which areas they're strongest or weakest in and where they can really move the levers. And so uh, anyone can get that for free at doryclark.com slash toolkit. And uh, I hope that that's helpful. And yeah, for the books, uh, Reinventing You, Standout, Entrepreneurial You, you can get them Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Glad to have you. And now I'm going to share a little joke that I was looking at your reviews and I was like, I need a bigger monitor because I can't see any non-five-star reviews. They're like, it's like a pixel for the non-five stars. I'm like, that's really a lot of five-star reviews. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. She must have learned to write as a journalist. (laughs) Well, I am certainly grateful that that people are enjoying it. That's for sure. And uh, any words for the listeners before wrapping up that um, any expectations of what you think it'll be like, or if they, I don't know, anything to share with them before? Usually the sharing with the listeners comes on the second one after they've done the challenge. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I predict it will be fine (laughs) because I think that that half the battle in choosing your goals and having a level of self-efficacy is knowing yourself enough to know what's a reasonable goal. 
And so, you know, do I like delicious salty feta cheese? Yes, I do. But do I need to eat delicious salty feta cheese all the time? Do I need that every day? No. You know, come on, American. You know, like, <laughs> it's like you don't you don't have to have everything all the time. And so I think that uh, having a little discipline in place and just saying, no, I don't do this here will be useful for me. So I want to hear how that goes. I want to listen to this just before we talk the next time and see how that evolves and how that changes and, or, or maybe how that takes root and things like that. So thank you again. I look forward to talking to you again. I predict we'll bump into each other a couple of times between now and then, and, but we won't talk too much about it. So the listeners get to hear everything. That's right. We'll, we'll preserve the element of surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Great talking to you. I look forward to hearing how it goes and talk to you again soon. Cool. Thanks a lot, Josh. Take care. Bye. I love that she picked a six-month challenge, which is pretty long. And even when I pushed her to maybe we could do it shorter, she said, no, I want to make sure this one sticks. And this is her forte. She knows how to help people through transitions, and she's gone through them herself. Some people have trouble doing these longer ones. I have a feeling she'll make it happen. I think it'll be inspirational. I'm also curious to see if she has challenges and how she makes it through. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.